Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Who is this man, Jesus? If you ask people today who Jesus Christ was, and we would say is, you get a lot of different answers, of course, in the modern and postmodern era. A lot of folks have no idea. You see, what's happened, I believe, over the last three centuries is that the sharp edges have been rounded off. The radical edge of the incarnation has been smoothed away. Did God really become human? When we are called to give a defense, when we're called to give a a reasoned argument at any time, when people ask us to give an account that is evidence for the hope that is in us, I'll remind us that when we began this series, we defined that hope not just as a concept, not just as a feeling, but we identified that hope as Jesus Christ. He is the hope who dwells in us in his spirit. And he is a radical, radical man. You know, I think those edges have been smoothed away over the last three centuries by a number of uh, influences. So take a a walk through history with me. Uh, What are our sources for knowing about who Jesus Christ is? Well, some would say that it comes through reason. And of course, the rationalists of the 17th century, very influential in the world of philosophy, Descartes and the others said that we we rely on our reason to define our existence and those things that we know. And reason's fine. And then along came the empiricists, John Locke and his followers, and they said, well, no, we really must rely on our experience and what we see, feel, hear, smell, and touch. And that, in fact, is legitimate as well. And then along came Immanuel Kant and his radical kind of uh, realism, idealism, rather, where he focused, instead of reason and experience, he focused on ethics. How do we behave? And then we come to Schleiermacher in the middle of the 19th century, and he focused on feeling. And all of those things are legitimate, but they can be pushed to the edge and they can become so radical that in their approach to understanding who Christ is, they smooth away all the edges. For example, the rationalist Baruch Spinoza uh, almost blurred the distinction between the supernatural and the natural by preaching a philosophy of pantheism. And you've heard me quote uh, David Hume many times in the last few weeks, the ultimate empiricist. Of course, he smoothed away the edges by emphasizing that we cannot accept miracles as being valid. And Immanuel Kant, as important as ethics are, that's not everything. He became virtually an agnostic and smoothed away more edges. Friedrich Schleiermacher, with his emphasis on feeling, that's legitimate. But when you try to appeal to a society out there to describe who Christ is based only on feeling 
and how the practical application of those feelings lead our lives, it leads to what developed in the 19th century, and that was a liberal approach to theology. And more and more we saw the edges being rounded away through higher criticism of scripture, and that is to take the word of God and to read into it things that aren't there and to read away the things that we know are true. Liberal theology that questioned miracles and questioned biblical reliability and authority and foundational doctrines in the 19th century. And then ultimately, when they asked the question, who is Jesus, they then began their search for the historical Jesus. And using all of those approaches, which would not account for miracles in the supernatural, we find then that by the end of the century, Albert Schweitzer, who was involved in this search, said that the liberal search for the historical Jesus had done nothing more than reproduce a Jesus of the 19th century mentality to fit the modern times. And so gradually over the last three centuries, a lot of the edges of this radical man that we know as Jesus Christ revealed in scripture have been smoothed away. Rudolf Bultmann and the neo-Orthodox theologians of the early 20th century in their effort to recover basic Orthodox theology against the liberal theology of the 19th century, went, some of them went too far. Bultmann said what we must do is we must demythologize scripture. It's full of myths and what we must do is we, we must recover who Jesus is for us today in practical application. And you put all of that together over the last three centuries and what it has left us with, unfortunately, in many churches and in many seminaries is a questioning or disbelief in the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the vicarious substitutionary atonement, the miraculous atonement of Jesus' shed blood, the radical nature of the resurrection that he lived, he died, and he was raised by God through the power of the Spirit, and a questioning of biblical authority and reliability. And so as we come today to this question about did God really become human let's put it in the background of what we've done so far in apologetics in the past few weeks we have restated that we believe that God exists and he loves you he loves us we have reestablished the fact that truth exists and it is embodied in Jesus Christ who is the way the truth and the life God's ways are mysterious they are not like our ways they are not unreasonable according to God's reasoning, but they are beyond our understanding totally. God is triune. He is one substance with three persons, and that is a great mystery, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is supernatural. He is above nature. It is not a pantheistic God. He is above nature, and he is creator. He created everything from nothing, and he is also sustainer, providential sustainer of what we see, feel, hear, smell, and touch today, and that which we do not see. He sustains everything. And he takes responsibility in the Old Testament and the New Testament for all of his world. Yes, there is evil and suffering in this world. God performs miracles in this world. And we talked last week about the fact that he will not destroy evil now because he would destroy free will if he were to do so. So that brings us then to what I would call Christian apologetics. All of that sets the background and the stage for now looking at a defense of the hope that is Jesus Christ who is in us. And this, of course, is the central doctrine of our faith. Jesus Christ is the good news of God to the world. 
We live in a sinful, fallen, broken, corrupt world. All we have to have done is watch five minutes of the news this past week. But God loves the world so much that he wants to rescue the world from its sin and depravity. He loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The person of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God and the word of God became flesh uniquely. The answer to the question, did God become human is yes. And the work of Jesus Christ was made perfect through his unique sacrifice for our sin. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have the crux of Christian apologetics. Resurrected and glorified, he is our hope. He is our eternal salvation. And the biblical witness is very clear. So why did I walk through that history a moment ago? Reason is okay. Experience is fine. Ethics we need. We need to respond to our feelings. We need to apply the gospel in practical terms to people out there in everyday life. But we must begin where? We must begin with the infallible word of God. You see, it is the way that God has informed us about the hope that we have in us. If we want to know the truth about who Jesus Christ is in our defense of the faith, we must go to Scripture. And it fits within our reasonable structure and our experience and our feelings and all of those things and our emphasis on faith, but we begin there. And in John, the first chapter, you might expect me to begin there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. There is nothing that has been made that was made without him. Nothing came into being without him. And in the 14th verse of the prologue then, we are informed that the word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, even the glory of the only begotten who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul gives us further witness about who this man Christ is in Colossians. He is the image as very, very much like what we heard in Hebrews this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the crux of the incarnation. And it has been challenged through the ages, not just the past 300 years. How, how, would, Christ, how, how would God be born? How could he be born supernaturally? The fact that he lived has been questioned. His historicity and the incarnation. His unique nature has been challenged, and we're going to talk about that today, his divine nature and his human nature. And next week, we are going to take up his divine work, his unique work, which is the work of salvation, the unique work of redemption. So this morning, what I'd like to do is to walk us through three aspects of this, answering this question, how God then became human. First of all, we believe that the Son of God 
was born of a virgin, the virgin birth, which is not only questioned but challenged by all liberal theologians. He lived among us, secondly. He lived among us indeed, and we have seen his glory, as is proclaimed in the prologue of John. And then finally, Jesus Christ is uniquely and fully God and uniquely and fully human. Yes, he was born of a virgin. What is the importance of this doctrine? Well, first of all, this speaks to the deity of Christ. It says that he was born by the power of God through the Spirit, conceived by the seed of the Spirit, supernaturally born, not just a natural birth, conceived by the power of God. So it speaks to his deity. It's essential, this doctrine, to our understanding the identity of Christ. And it speaks to his sinless nature, his sinless righteousness. He was born perfect man, born without sin and without the seed of a father that was sinful seed. And this was important so that as he grew and he matured and as he he was perfect man and perfectly obedient to God his father, he could also make the perfect sacrifice for our sinful nature and the human race. So it is important, the virgin birth, to our understanding of who he is. There have been challenges to this, of course, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. There are people that say that miracles are not possible, and we addressed that a couple of weeks ago. Miracles are essential to God's person and the plan of redemption. And the, the Bible is very clear about that, and we take a very clear stand that we believe in miracles. Secondly, there are those that speak about the biblical account as being unreliable, as not being the authoritative word of God. We are going to deal with that in four weeks from now and five weeks from now in, in, in two sermons. The virgin birth, some would say, was not a historical event, but it was fabricated from pagan myths. So let's take up those challenges. What about the biblical account and its reliability? It is very specific about the virgin birth. In the Old Testament, the prophecy begins in Genesis, the third chapter. And of course, this is when God speaks about the curse that results from the fall. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. It doesn't say between you and the man. And between your offspring and heirs. He will crush your head and he will strike his heel. In in Jewish culture, of course, the descendancy, the heirship, the bloodline was always traced through whom? It was traced through the father's line. So this is a remarkable passage in Genesis 3rd chapter. The passage speaks of the woman's lineage, not the human father's lineage. The virgin birth involved no man, no human seed that convey human sin. And then in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, we read this often at the time of the nativity. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name, what? Emmanuel. Of course, Isaiah 7, 14. This is probably a double fulfillment. One of Isaiah's sons, Meher Shalhal Hashbaz, and that is a mouthful. In Isaiah, the eighth chapter. His wife gave birth, yes, and she was a, was a firstborn. She was a virgin when she, when she conceived, but she was, it was through, the, through human seed. 
No, this points to the second fulfillment in the birth of Christ. Mary was not only a a virgin when she conceived, she remained a virgin throughout her pregnancy and then gave birth. Now, when we speak about the virgin birth, our understanding of this is we do not endorse a doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. We believe that she had other children after that. We also do not endorse the doctrine of the immaculate conception of Mary. We do not raise her up and glorify her as a, a fourth head in the Trinity. No, but she is important, crucial, essential to the incarnation because she was con- she conceived by the what? By the Holy Spirit. The first, uh, this was the first of four messianic prophecies. It's the one that we focus on in Isaiah, but we find it also in Isaiah 8, 9, and 11 about the virgin birth. In the New Testament, the virgin birth is very clearly verified. There is a heavenly confirmation. The angel comes to Joseph in Matthew 1 and tells him not to fear that God is doing this. And then, of course, Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke 1 and confirms it with her. There is an apostolic witness that comes from Paul in Galatians, the fourth chapter. God sent forth his son at just the right time under the law, his son, what, made of a woman not tainted with Adam's sin, we are told later in Paul's letters to the Corinthians and 1 Peter and 1 John and the author of Hebrews in chapter 4. He was without sin, virgin birth. So we have biblical witness to that, and we stand by that clearly. Also, the virgin birth is not a myth. How long does it take for a myth to grow? Well, most anthropologists say that it takes about two to three generations. You see, if a story is told and retold and retold in this generation and it is false, there will people that will will rise up and they will speak against it. But after a couple or three generations, it is possible for the truth to be blurred and to be bent and for myths to grow. The fact of the matter is the accounts that we have are much earlier than that much earlier than two generations after the birth of Jesus Christ. The New Testament accounts are early. Paul's epistles, he began writing them in the early 50s, within 20 years of Christ's death, not two or three generations later. The Gospels, the accounts that are the basis of the Gospels, were being collected from about 40 to 60 A.D. So again, much too early for myth to have influenced them. And most of the New Testament was written before 70 70 A.D. Not to mention the fact that the Scripture explicitly on this issue says that it does not accept myths. It it does not abide myths. Peter puts it this way in chapter 1. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, that is myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So it it explicitly repudiates the idea of myths. There are specific arguments that we we, we would levy against those that would say that it is a myth. The New Testament accounts are not embellished like most myths are. There are some other accounts of the birth of Christ that are not found in our scripture, and they are all embellished. They are these wondrous stories about the miracles that he performed when he was a child. He had the capability of doing that, but they are not in the biblical record. We do not have embellished myths in the 
scripture that God has given us. Luke validates the facts about Jesus' birth. He begins his gospel by telling us that he did very careful historical research to make sure that the details were accurate. Also, no Greek myth parallels this myth exactly. No Greek myth, yes, there's virgin birth in some Greek myths, but it's not followed by a crucifixion and a resurrection. And even those Greek myths that we do have that speak about a virgin birth of a God postdate the birth of Jesus Christ. So first of all, we would affirm in our defense of the gospel and the centrality of the incarnation that the virgin birth is accurate according to biblical record. Secondly, we believe that he lived among us, he walked among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, not individually. We haven't seen his glory physically, but the apostles did, and they have passed the record down to us. But we have experienced his presence through his spirit. The New Testament witnessed to this once again. The Pauline epistles, written in the, from the early 50s on, were written within 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, but the accounts upon which he based them were probably from his discussions with the apostles that occurred five to seven years after the resurrection when he visited Jerusalem. So the accounts are very early. The Gospels are not late. You know, liberal theologians in the 19th century wanted to make most of the New Testament written in the second century, but that is not the fact. They were the, almost all of the New Testament was written before the fall of the temple, before 70 A.D., and certainly it was all completed before the end of the century with John's apocalypse. And you know, you look at the accounts. You look at the accounts of Jesus' interaction with the disciples and the apostles. The, the accounts have some hard sayings by Jesus. Some hard sayings that are very difficult for us, and those would have been easy if they had been fabricated to eliminate. His shameful death recorded in the New Testament. Who would, who would follow a God who would be crucified on a cross? You see, that would have been eliminated probably. His rebuking of the disciples this is found in the Gospels. It's found in the Gospels written by Matthew, by one of the apostles, or by Mark, one that knew Peter well. The, shame, the, the rebuking of the disciples is a rather embarrassing account, but the disciples and the apostles let it, let it go and kept it in, the, in the, uh, the record. And of course, the witness that is given by women. In Hebrew culture, women's witness was not accepted. This was an embarrassing detail. But the New Testament considers their, their testimony credible. You put all of these things together and, and it tells us that this could not have been a document that had been fabricated based on a reasonable expectation of the first century, but it had to be authored by God. There are extra biblical sources that also tell us that Christ lived, not just the apostles, not just the New Testament, but in the first century, Josephus, the, Ju the Jewish historian, gives account, account of Jesus having lived. In the second century, Tacitus, the Roman historian, Suetonius, another Roman historian, Lucian of Samosata, a Greek satirist, Phlegon of Trallus, a first century Greek historian writing in the, the early part of the second century, and the Jewish Talmud all give us accounts that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a living, breathing, flesh-bearing human being that walked the face of this earth in Galilee. Not to mention the, the affirmation by acclamation. 
Over 2 billion Christians today call him Lord. Even almost 2 billion Muslims don't call him Lord, but they believe that he lived and they say that he was a prophet. Over half the world population then affirm him as having lived and having been a significant religious leader. No one seriously today would repudiate the fact that Jesus Christ lived and walked among us. And we would affirm from the New Testament that we have beheld his glory. And then finally, we would believe that the, uh, we would affirm what we believe about the nature of Jesus Christ. And this is the most unique thing of all in the incarnation, that he is fully God and fully human. Opposition focuses on this nature of Jesus Christ's person and also of his work. What we will do next week is we will deal with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ's work. And what is that? Salvation, his redemption through his vicarious atonement. But this morning, let's take a look at his nature. Now we deal with the mystery of the incarnation. It's not just did God become human, but what does that mean? Was Jesus really God in human flesh, really in flesh? How could he be both fully God and fully man at the same time? God became man. This is what is basically said in the prologue of the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. He says in Galatians 4 that he was, of course, as we said earlier, born of a woman under the law, revealed in the flesh, he says to Timothy. And the author of Hebrews says that he is a little lower than the what? Than the angels, and therefore partook in flesh and blood. The biblical evidence is very clear. He became man, God's divine son, the Lagos, the word of God took on human form. Paul tells the Philippians that though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was equal with God, the Son of God, of the same substance, the triune relationship, God Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, that he did not pause to pour himself out. He emptied himself out, and in so doing, he limited his divinity. Yes, was Christ limited when he walked this earth? Of course he was. He was limited geographically in space and time to one body. His knowledge was limited. He confessed that he did not know when the end times were coming. Only the Father knows that. And he grew as a human. We see this at the end of Luke, the second chapter. He grew in wisdom and what? Stature and what? Favor with God and man. So he was truly human and fully human, born of a woman, and yet he retained his full deity. He poured out some of the characteristics associated with God, but he retained his nature as God, deity. The historical affirmation of Christ's nature is found through the first centuries of the church and the ecumenical councils as they wrestle with these doctrines, as they examined Scripture very carefully and closely and took it as the authoritative Word of God. And the first four councils, actually the first six ecumenical councils of the church from the 4th to the 7th centuries, affirm what we have just said. That is, the Son of God, 
before he was born in human flesh. The Son of God is of the same substance as the Father. The Son of God is co-eternal with the Father. There never was when he was not. He always has been in eternity. And the Son of God is not subordinate in being to the Father. And by that, what we mean is there's not one substance that is God the Father and another substance that is God the Son that is different and subordinate in his nature. He is of the same nature as God the Father and God the Spirit. He's not subordinate in nature, but he's subordinate in what? In his role. He's subordinate in what he does. He is the son that obeys the father. He is the son who watches the father and he sees what the father is doing. He does the father's will. He is subordinate in that way, but not in his nature. This is the son of God. And then the son of God was, became incarnate, Jesus Christ. Jesus, that is, Savior, Christ, the Messiah, the incarnate son of God, born of a virgin through the power of God and the conception of the Holy Spirit. He retained his full deity, in the same substance as the Father. One person. He was not a split personality. One person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, but he had two natures. One was divine. One was human. And folks, he has two natures today. One which continues to be divine and one which continues to be human. Fully divine, fully human. And his human will is always subordinate to his divine will. The importance of this doctrine cannot be underscored. Why? Why is it so important that he was fully God and is fully God? Was fully man and is fully man? Well, there are at least three reasons I would give you this morning. Number one is the atonement. The atonement, the sacrifice had to be what? The sacrifice had to be perfect and it had to be pure. The sacrifice for human sin could only be made by God himself. And the violation of God's glory was an infinite violation of all the sin of all time through all creation. And so the sin, that had the, the payment for that sin, had to be infinite. It could only be paid by God, who was fully God. And yet at the same time, it is human sin for whom Christ has died. And so it had to be a human substitutionary payment for our sin. For not a single one of us is capable of paying for our own sin. It took, an inter it took a, a Lord who would sacrifice himself and his shed blood to pay for my sin because I cannot do it. So because of the atonement, this doctrine of being fully God and fully human is important. It's important for identification, to identify, to identify with us as humans. He had to be fully human. He had to go through the temptations that we know and be victorious over them. He experienced and overcame our infirmities that he shared with us. And this enabled him then to become a priest on our behalf who would make payment for our sin. So secondly, because of his identification with us. And then finally, because of his intercession. He today is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, bodily, fully God, fully man. And he has qualified himself by his sacrifice as our high priest, and he intercedes for us. There is biblical evidence for his deity. Jesus himself made this claim. We went through a series of three or four years ago, five or six years ago, on the I Ams of Scripture. Thirty-two times in Scripture, Jesus refers to himself as the I Am. And of course, that is code word for I am God. 
I am of the same substance and beingness as Jehovah God of the Old Testament. I and the Father are one, he says in John 10. If you have seen me, you have seen whom? The Father. He prayed to the Father to restore himself to his pre-incarnational glory. Clearly, Jesus' claims are that he is the Son of God. Jesus' actions, he claimed to be the Messiah that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. He accepted worship. He forgave sin. He didn't just heal, but he also forgave sin when he did it. He claimed authority equal to God's, and he told his disciples to pray in his name. From the apostles' testimony, they give him the titles that come from the Old Testament that identify him clearly as God. In the Old Testament, God is identified as Redeemer. Christ is Redeemer. He is forgiver of sins. Jesus Christ is forgiver of sins. He is the Savior of the world. Yeshua, Jesus, is the Savior of mankind. He is Creator, and we saw that in John, the first chapter. Nothing has been created without the Word of God, the Logos, the Son of God, who then became Jesus Christ. His disciples viewed him as the Messiah. Andrew said this when he came to Peter, we have found him who is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And Peter confessed this to Christ later. They called him God. When Thomas saw him there and and Jesus said, put your hand on my side, put your fingers in, in my hands. He said, what? My Lord and my God. Time and time again, Paul in his epistles refers to him as God and Savior. The author of Revelation, John, and the author of Hebrews say that the angels worship him. There is full biblical evidence that he is God. Norman Geisler uh, identifies 16 of the prophecies in the Old Testament, and there are many more than that, that point specifically to the incarnate deity of Christ and how they are fulfilled from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We do not have time to go through all 16 of those this morning, but one of those, for example, from Daniel the ninth chapter, the prediction was that he would die 438 uh, years after the edict to reconstruct the temple, and it was fulfilled precisely to the year. So those kinds of prophecies, 16 of those prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ, who is deity, full God, and full man. The probability of all of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person is 1 times 10 to the 45th power. He lived a sinless life. It affirms his deity. His disciples spoke of him as the lamb without blemish, one in whom there was no deceit, the righteous one, the one who has no sin. And this was affirmed by others. Pilate, when he looks at Jesus, he said, I can find no what? No guilt in him. In my eyes, he is innocent. The thief on the cross said, he has done nothing wrong. The soldier at the foot of the cross, when he sees Jesus expire, he says, surely this was a righteous man. He indeed was sinless. His miracles affirm his deity. Jesus said, if you don't believe what I say, just look at the things that I do. The blind receive their sight, and he then cited all of the miracles that he performed to John's disciples. Nicodemus said, no one could perform the, the, the miracles that you do, teacher, unless it was a teacher sent from God. And there were a large number of dramatic miracles recorded in the New Testament, at least 40 specific miracles that Jesus did in the New Testament. 
And John goes on to say, many more were not recorded, and if they were, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them all. So there's plenty of biblical evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ. Is there any evidence for his full humanity? Of course there is. One of the earliest heresies of the church was not questioning the deity of Christ. It was questioning the humanity of Christ, and it's called docetism. Many of you are familiar with it. It said that Christ only appeared to have a human form. John very clearly condemns this as a heresy in his first letter. He said this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus in this way is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. John and the rest of the New Testament speak very, very clearly about the full humanity of Christ. He was not just an apparition. He wasn't just a ghostly appearance of God on the earth. He had real flesh and blood. He had a human ancestry. Luke tells us this, and so does Matthew. He had a human birth, and we have covered that in detail. He had a human childhood. He was taken in the temple. He was circumcised. He was dedicated at the temple. We find him learning in the temple and growing in wisdom, growing in stature, growing in favor with God and man. He had human limitations. He hungered greatly after he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. He came to the Samaritan woman, and he was thirsty. He asked her for a drink of water. And, of course, that was an entree for him to share the gospel with her, but he was really thirsty. He grew tired and weary and had to retreat to rest. He had human emotions. He wept at Lazarus' death. He wept over Jerusalem. He was troubled in his heart when he hears Mary weeping over Lazarus' death and knowing that she had questions about his ability to raise him. He had compassion over people, and that's why he healed them. That's why he fed them. And he felt anger, yes, real anger, at the money changers and the hypocritical leaders of his day. He was human. He experienced human temptation in every way, just as we. If there's a temptation that you have faced, that you have a question about in your life, Jesus Christ faced it, except what? Without sin. In the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. We know this, but it wasn't just then. It was through the rest of his incarnate walking on this earth. In the garden, he asked the Father to allow this cup to pass from him. He, he was tempted at that point not to follow through, but then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. On the cross, he questioned God's presence momentarily. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he overcame that temptation and he then turned his soul over to his father when he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He suffered pain and distress, agony in the garden. He sweat as it was great drops of blood on the ground. He experienced physical pain and suffering and beating and the crucifixion and the emotional strain on the cross. He was human, and we have evidence of this not only from Scripture, but also from external secular witnesses. Josephus, the historian, tells us that he was executed on the cross by Pontius Pilate. Phlegon, the Greek historian, recorded that an eclipse occurred during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Tacitus, the Roman historian, also speaks of his execution 
at the trial, after the trial of Pontius Pilate. Lucian of Samosata gives evidence that Jesus Christ, the man from Galilee, was crucified in Palestine. And we have manifold evidence from Scripture that he died physically on the cross. All four Gospels, Paul tells us in the epistles, Peter tells us in his epistles, and the author of Hebrews. He shed his blood in payment for our sin. So where does this, where does this leave us? In our defense that we are to give, when people ask us to give a defense and they want us to give an account of the hope that is in us. Here we come then to the crux of the matter. The incarnation is the foundational doctrine of not just Christian apologetics, but our hope that is in us. His death, fully God, fully man, does what? It demonstrates God's love for us. For while we were yet sinners, Christ, who had been the incarnate and continues to be the Son of God, poured out his divinity, was obedient to death, even death on a cross, to demonstrate what? God's love for us. Human reason could not invent that. Human experience had never faced that before. Human ethics does not rise to that level. And our feelings find it repugnant that God would die on a cross for us. But the scripture verifies, validates, and affirms to us that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, came on earth and died for our sins. This morning, God demonstrates his love for you. And that while you are even now a sinner, if you are, that Christ died for you on the cross. And what we will speak about next week is the unique ministry and work of Jesus Christ through redemption, where God raised him up and gave him victory over sin and death so that you might have eternal life. And the invitation is open this morning. He who loved you so much that he was obedient to the Father who sent him to die for your sin has paid the price for your sins so that you might have eternal life. The invitation is open as we sing this hymn of invitation. Maybe you're here this morning, you want to respond to it by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to make some significant decision to follow him and to serve him. Maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe you want to be a part of this fellowship. Maybe you want to serve him here. If you're online, maybe you want to make that decision for Jesus Christ. How do you do it? I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment. And if you wish to accept Christ in Lord and Savior, you may do so as we pray. Would you join me? Father, we thank you so much that you loved us so much and you demonstrated your love for us that you not only gave your only begotten son, but that he also died on the cross. He died for my sin to pay for the price of my iniquity, my wickedness, my sinful nature, so that I might accept him as Lord and Savior knowing that sin leads to death, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that is in us gives us eternal life when we believe in him and we accept him as our Lord and our Savior. And my prayer is this morning, if there is one who is listening, one who is watching, one who is here, that this message is touched.
that that person will respond by dying to self, giving themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord, and accepting the gift of eternal salvation through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. What is God's pleasure with you this morning as you respond to the invitation? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.